those first two years were really just learning the process of getting the flywheel working. The illustration of a flywheel moving, like that first two years, a lot of people just can't get it moving consistently. And then their business just can't get going and can't move. At the time, we didn't know fundraising or anything. I was taking out 20K, zero APR for 12 month credit cards to fund this stuff. So it had to work. We funded with our profit. We didn't pay ourselves until we got to about a $10 million business. All the money went back into the business because that's the only way we could do it without raising money. Stop me if you've heard this before. In business, always need to keep the flywheel spinning. Okay, wait, don't actually stop the podcast. I know it sounds cliche, but it's true. To have a successful business, you need to be constantly churning out products, bringing in customers, making sales, lather, rinse, repeat. That's the part we all know. What so many founders and business owners can't quite figure out is how to actually get that wheel spinning at all, let alone continuously. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, I talk with Stephen Borelli, the CEO and founder of Cuts, a lifestyle e-commerce fashion brand that celebrities, entrepreneurs, athletes, and everyday folks love. Steven has some firsthand experience in the struggles of getting his company off the ground and into the hands of consumers. And his story includes an early $20,000 loss and a nine-hour journey through China. But he also has some of the answers that brands are looking for when it comes to building an efficient and sustainable business. What's the secret sauce? And how do testing, YouTube, and NFTs play a role? We got into all of that and more on this episode. Enjoy. Really quick, I want to say thank you, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And I'm going to allow them to give you the inside scoop into some of the findings from their most recent State of Commerce report. Hi, this is John from Salesforce. Did you know that companies of all sizes and industries power their digital customer journeys with Commerce Cloud? Salesforce Commerce Cloud delivers B2B and B2C commerce, as well as order management around the globe. And with Commerce Cloud, you can engage with your customers anywhere and personalize interactions everywhere. Scale and innovate with ease and drive some serious growth for your business. And speaking of innovation, we recently surveyed nearly 1,400 commerce leaders and analyzed the consumer shopping and business buying behavior of more than 1 billion customers worldwide. And we uncovered emerging trends that will influence how companies can be successful and stay ahead in this ever-evolving landscape. To check out the trends we discovered, go to sfdc.co slash commerceinsights. That's sfdc.co slash commerceinsights, one word. Before we dive into the episode, I want to let you in on a little secret. Did you know that Mission has the number one e-commerce newsletter? It's amazing. It has really good news and insights and case studies that you will not find anywhere else. So go subscribe, mission.org slash upnextincommerce. All right, on to the show. Welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO at Mission. Today on the show, we have Stephen Borelli, who's the CEO and founder at Cuts Clothing. Stephen, welcome to the show. Welcome. Happy to be here. Heard a lot about the show and excited to chat. Yes, I cannot wait to hear all the details. I was looking into your company, seeing your growth story, and I feel like everyone listening is going to have a lot to learn. So with that, tell me a bit about Cuts Clothing. How did you start it? When did you start it? Why? Cuts is a, a lifestyle e-commerce fashion brand that was launched on the premise of doing one thing really great, which was the t-shirt. We've since expanded into being a lifestyle brand, having joggers, t-shirts, polos, Sherpa. And our goal is to outfit the world's most ambitious people. 
And uh, we do that through our great community that we built. I really wanted to be my own boss. So I moved home from 2015 to 2017, and I call it like year zeros, where I just focused on learning e-commerce and manufacturing, teamed up with four guys, an accountant, a marketing guy, a business intelligence person. And we created this nucleus of four guys that were you know, very ambitious, and we wanted to create the next uh, billion-dollar brand. We all had separate jobs at the time, and we were actually in four different locations. Carter was in Wenatchee. I was in L.A., Sean was in Seattle and Brandon was in San Diego and we all were doing separate things. And we did that for three years and, and we put all the money back into the business. And our whole focus as we launched the business was just do one thing really great. And that was the t-shirt. So when you started Cuts, tell me about some of the early stories. I mean, you've got these other guys you're working with. Like, what did it look like in the early days? Uh, the early days was was a lot of and I hate using the word fake it till you make it because that's kind of like, yeah. you know, we weren't working hard, but it was a lot of, I call it blind faith. We had to have a lot of blind faith in things we weren't experts in to push through. What One example of that was we were working with this new manufacturer in, in uh, China. We had just left our LA factory because it was just too expensive. And they said, hey, you need to be doing 10,000 units a month to really be working with us. And that was a lot of units at the time. You know, we were a small business. We haven't raised money. So it was an enormous amount of units that we were over-promising essentially. Mm -hmm. And we just sat down. I sat down with the factory and said, hey, we're going to be the biggest brand that you've you've ever talked to because we're selling shirts online and no one's doing that right now. You know, they believed me. And we put this big presentation together, how we're going to be this next great business. And that presentation was for them, but I think even more so was it was for us to be like, okay, it was one of those things we had to put a flag on the ground and say, mm-hmm. we're going to do this. And it really you know, gave us the, the blueprint and the confidence and we put it out there and then we manifested it and it ended up coming true. That was uh, one of the early days uh, things that I think has really helped us. And, and now we, we plan that way and we vision out and it's been a good thing for us to help us see the future. Yeah. So when you were early days, you know, switching from LA, were there any interesting stories when you were going out trying to find new suppliers and, you know, manufacturers and factories and whatnot, like anything interesting happening there? Because I feel like every founder I talk to is always like, one of them was like, we went to the factory and there was like smoke everywhere. And we kept wondering why all of our garments smelled like smoke. And the other one said, we just didn't get a delivery and anything interesting happened in the early days when you were going out and seeking someone new. Totally. So we first, we flew to Hong Kong and we were, we, we met with this agent guy so the first night is he takes us out and we go in Hong Kong. We've never been there. And we thought, you know, we we're international businessmen. You know, we were, it was such a cool feeling. We landed in Hong Kong. They picked us up in a Tesla and they drove us to our place, Mr. Borelli on the signs. And it was so like, it felt like we were doing it. And it was just one of those moments that was really cool. But on the downside is they, they took us out and then they kind of took us to like all the worst places we could go to. But we didn't know that at the time. Like our first place was in this town in China called Yi Wu. Very little Americans like will ever go there. It's just, there's not a real reason to go. And we show up and we had sent our fabric from the Philippines all the way to Yiwu, China, which cost us 20 grand to do. And we were like, this is going to be our our place where that gets it manufactured. We get to the factory and it's like really bad factory, like just not good conditions for the workers. And it was just like not a good situation. There wasn't even a table for us to like talk and meet. We were like kind of like, they put up boxes and it was just, and we're like, well, we just lost $20,000. Wow. We realized it there. Like we just lost our full Christmas order in 2015. And we honestly thought the business might be over 
over. So we went from being international businessmen in Hong Kong to our Christmas orders weren't going to get there. So that was like the high and low of the trip. But then at the end of the trip, quick backstory, on my way there, this guy calls me and he's like, hey, I hear you're going to be in China. I really think you should go to this factory before you leave. It's a great resource. But the guy would not stop calling me. So I kind of thought he was like a, like a telemarketer. Yeah. And I, Sean, who was our director of operations, I said, hey, Sean, you just take this call. And so at the end, when we were leaving that factory, that was just, we were down the dunks. We just realized we lost $20,000 worth of fabric. It was better to just let that cost be than try to make it work because it was such mm-hmm. a bad place. I think, and it cost us $20,000 to ship it there. So it was like that's a $40,000 mistake. And in the beginning, that's an enormous amount of money. So then we go to this other town, which is nine hours away. They stick us on a, a car and the guy doesn't know English. So we're just in a car in China going somewhere we have no clue. And it's not like you can see, like when you're in like Mexico, you can kind of make out where you're going because you can understand the letters and you can kind of look it up. In China, it's just symbols. And you're just like, yeah. you could be taking us and get kidnapped. We have no clue. So then we get to this factory and we're like, wow, this is actually pretty nice. Really like quaint, nice town in China, like good conditions. People look like they were having fun. Mm-hmm. And so we're like, all right, there's reason to be optimistic. We go into this building and the guy just really likes this. He's, you know, he says not a lot of people when they start a business are out in China. And he was like, you guys are way below our minimums, but because you're here, we'll give you a shot. And then they gave us good terms. They gave us like 90 days. So we didn't have to pay money because we had, we just had this sunk cost Mm -hmm. happen. And it was one of those moments, like if we didn't connect the dots and drive nine hours and take that phone call and then get this guy that believed in us that was like, Hey, I believe in your idea. We had this deck ready. It really like spun our business and got the flywheel moving like in a way, like it would have been so many other factories would have had us put 40 grand down and we didn't have that money. Mm -hmm. It was just a huge opportunity for us to kind of build momentum. And so I always tell people like, you know, if you can muster up the money, go to China. I know now it's, you can't really go, but back then, you know, go meet with the people, share your vision with them. Because when tough times come, like that's, you're really going to need to lean on that. And something about like, they really just respected us for being young guys out there. We we had this plan of how we're going to go from 2000 units to 10,000 units by the end Mm -hmm. of the year. It wasn't fake it till you make it, but it was like, here's our vision. We want you to believe in it too. And it ended up being a great resource for us. We were with them for three years before we outgrew them. But uh, it was like a roller coaster of a trip. Hong Kong international businessmen, we're in like the sweatshops of China. Meanwhile, we're driving like nine hours away with no translator. So it was really just a kind of lucky in some ways. Uh, When we left, we're like, you know, five days in China, we were ready to get home, but we found our supplier and we're ready to rock. Wow. That's a great story. I'm very glad you shared that one. So, I mean, was this supplier to fulfill orders from, I know you had a Kickstarter campaign or is this like way past the Kickstarter campaign when you guys were already like off the races after? So our first Kickstarter year was uh, 2016 and we did like 40K on Kickstarter. Then that year we finished at like 180K. Mm -hmm. This next year, we didn't really sell until August. So it was like probably January of of 2017, we were doing this because we fulfilled the orders in LA, but then we're like, we can't make money in LA. We got it. So we really didn't get units back in the store until August of 2017. So it took a while. So those first two years were very like, you're really just learning the process of getting the flywheel working. Mm -hmm. And I think the illustration of a flywheel moving like that first two years, a lot of people just can't get it moving consistently. And then their business just can't get going and can't move. At the time, we didn't know fundraising or anything. I was taking out 20K 
zero APR for 12 month credit cards to fund yeah. this stuff. So it had to work. And so we, we funded with our profit. We didn't pay ourselves until we got to about a $10 million business. We, none of us worked full time. All the money went back into the business because that's the only way we could do it without raising money. So that one trip was kind of how it all kickstarted. That's great. So, I mean, when thinking about building a flywheel today, like how would you advise, you know, new business owners who are thinking about this? I'm sure everyone is like, I want a flywheel. How do I get one? How do I think about that? What, what would you say, or how would you guide them to start kind of thinking about their own internal flywheel for their specific company? Like what are the most important levers? What were you guys looking into the most? I think getting the right role to find internally is, is the biggest part. I came from a branding agency and I had a decent understanding of what consumers wanted. So I handled like product design and guides in the beginning. Then we brought on someone to shoot our content, which was Brennan. Then our, uh, my CPA at the time, I was at the gym working out. I was like, man, I got all these Kickstarter orders. Can you help me? And he was just financial excellence. Like I, I said, hey, let me push it as much as we can. You just make sure you tell me when to stop and I'll always listen to you. Mm-hmm. And then we found a really good operations guy that kind of make all of us marriage. And those four guys, we never questioned each other of like, I would never question Carter because I wasn't in finance of like whether we should spend money or not. Mm-hmm. But he wouldn't question me of like how to spend money online on marketing. So that was the first step of like, we just had a good organization set up from day one. And then we just didn't spend money inefficiently. We spent money on, on products and marketing. And we, all, we always make sure our math works. I think a lot of times founders don't understand the math of a business. So, you know, I always tell this story. I sold barbecue gloves on Amazon and I, I bought 5,000 of them. They're 15 cents. And I was like, oh, I can sell them for five bucks and I'm going to make so much money. The cost to advertise was more than the cost of the gloves. So I was going to lose money on every order. And I ended up just losing 5K. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand e-commerce, but that lesson really taught me of like, you got to understand your CPA cost and uh, you know your cost of goods and your overhead. You, that, that equation ha- has to work from the get-go if you're not going to raise money or else you're not going to have profit. So we were profitable on every order. So we always had a little bit more inventory to buy every PO. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden the flywheel started working. We were able to get good lines of credit and boom, we are where we are today because of that kind of structure. Yeah. That's great. I mean, that's what essentially everyone in every interview I've had says hire the right people. And then like you're saying, give them their lane, let them go. Don't micromanage them. And so that's great. How are you guys looking at right now with all the craziness happening around supply chain? What are you all doing? Cause it seems like you've been, you know, ground level, you learned exactly how it works. Like what are you all doing now to maybe stay ahead for the holiday season coming up? What are you looking into? Well, for next holiday season, we just finished Cyber Monday and the supply chain is going to be difficult next year. So we used to, which was a competitive advantage for us, work on a 90-day schedule, which was unheard of for fashion. We would order things, get them in and sell them. Mm-hmm. That helped in two ways. One, it helped us take less riskier bets because we, we you know, would get data from customers what colors they want. 90 days later, we would be able to order and be in our store. Mm-hmm. And then it also helped us on the back end because we could all we needed was 90 days of line of credit. And then we could sell the stuff before we had to pay it. But once in the early days, was a competitive advantage became a massive deterrent this year because raw materials needed to be booked out further and you just got to plan way higher. So now we're all, all of next year's POs are already planned. Some deposits are paid because mm-hmm. things are taking longer. The ports are taking long times to clear through. And so just better planning and more like we've extended our timelines is one where how we're going to avoid not having product to sell. That's probably the biggest thing I, I think we're focusing on. 
Got it. Okay. So now you're just planning much farther in advance for before you like doing it in like a three month time frame because you're able to move quickly and mm-hmm. a lot of other people weren't doing that at the time. Mm-hmm. Now you're trying to catch up. Got it. Okay. And that's the thing about business. There's always different seasons of life where you're going to have to adjust to the times. And in the early days, that's what we had to do because we didn't have lines of credit. Now, you know, tons of banks want to give us money. We've been in business for five years. And, you know, right when you hit that four-year mark, you know, people realize you're not a fad, you'll be around for a while. So then you can start leveraging debt and things like that. So we've been fortunate that we'll have that going into next year. Yeah. Things change. You got to adjust. Yep. Yeah. I agree. So I want to hear a bit about, you know, as your company has grown, what has that looked like? I know you went from just four guys doing everything, working part-time to now 50 employees. What has that transition looked like for you and the company? That transition has been the hardest for me as a leader, I think, because, you know, in the beginning, I'm a doer and I want to have my hands in everything and I want to see how the product is or how are our ads, finances, are we good? Like, Mm -hmm. because it means so much to me you know, is it a photo shoot? Is that image not what I envisioned? So scrap it. There's all these things that I wanted to have my thumbprint on, but as we've grown, we've really had to set up one trust, your trust the people you hire, which is important. And also to just put in the right organization and structure so you can lead from the top and everyone has a clear vision. I think, you know, the start of the pandemic, we had nine employees. Now, after, you know, two years of pandemic time, we, you know, we're close to 50, you know, we went through a phase where we hired a bunch of people and they didn't necessarily know what to do. So we didn't get good value out of them. And we really had to learn how to set a clear vision. We, and we use OKRs, objectives and key results, which a lot of big businesses use, but that's been huge for us. So each department has their own OKRs that lead up to the vision of the business. And without um, having learned that system, I think we would have not grown the way we've done because you end up hiring people. And if you don't have that system, you're kind of reliant on the employee alone. So you found employees that were just great doers and they could figure it out. And then those departments were good. Then there's other employees that are still great workers. They just need a little bit more clarity on what they're doing. But if you don't have that system, we found those departments didn't do as well, even though that might be the right employee, Mm -hmm. they just need to be led in a different way. So understanding that has been key for our growth. And especially when it was work from home, you know, we were nine months work from home with clothing as you make things. Like the product team, it wasn't just the product team that needed to be there. The marketing team needs to touch and feel it because they're the ones selling it. And so we recently went back full-time and a lot of people said, hey, Steve, are you going to do a hybrid model? What's, what's your policy? Everyone wants to work from home. Mm-hmm. We've kind of cut the bandaid off and said, no, everyone's back in the office, you know, full-time nine to five, because uh, we just find it to be so much more efficient when yeah. people can, can look and uh, look you in the eyes and meet. And what happened with work from home was, everything became a 30 minute meeting instead of just at the water cooler being like, Hey, what's your take on this? You know, you had to set a meeting, set an agenda and that brought structure and that can be good sometimes, but it just was lacking rhythm Mm -hmm. and the rhythm of our business. And as a founder, you can kind of see when your, your team's off rhythm. And so that was one of the things that we just said as a leadership team, Hey, I I think we want to, everyone needs to come back. We we lost two employees, but Mm -hmm. for the most part, everyone else wanted to, uh, Everyone else was like, hey, I, I want to be there. We, we create a fun environment. If people want to work from home on occasion, we, we allow that. But for the most part, we want people to be in here ready to go. Yeah. Being in person, I think, you know, after all this has gone down now, realizing how important it is to be face to face and how much more quickly people can absorb things when they're just like in the environment, listening, overhearing conversations, having lunch together, such a different vibe. When thinking about OKRs, so my thing is always like, how do you make it where it's actually helpful to the employee. Cause I always think back to my days 
at Google and we're doing OKRs and it just felt like a process where I was like, oh yeah, sure. Here's my two people, my two friends that review me. Yeah, sure. I'm meeting up to my goals. And it felt like extra work. And it always, and I feel like they should be, they are probably like the pristine company to look to of how they're doing OKRs. Totally. And I always, you know, even thinking about my company, I'm like, how do I do it in a way that's not just more burden and overhead for the employees to do something just to kind of tick the boxes and actually do it in a way that helps both of us? What do you think? How did you design it to be helpful? That's funny that you say this. Our first year doing it, we, we kind of, it became more work. And then by Q4, we just, we, we stopped talking about it and we just, everyone was working. Mm-hmm. The next year when we did it, I think the big unlock was, it wasn't just coming from the top. Every quarter, the employee, we would say, hey, what's important for you? Here, here's the vision of the business of the OKRs. Here's the five things we want to do. We kind of broke it down by departments and let the employees create their own. And I think that was key. And then we did tie it to bonuses and things like that. So there was a little bit more of an incentive to, to stay on it. Mm-hmm. But I think it gave them the ability to say, hey, look, this is actually what I'm doing. Because without it, you can kind of get in the rhythm of just doing more. And then it's kind of hard from their point of view to show the leadership team what you're doing because you're just kind of doing more. And it's it may be good, but it can be difficult to see what, what the impact is. Yep. Putting it in their hands was a, was a key unlock to make it effective and to not overcomplicate it too. There's certain roles, our content team, like, they're in the do mode. So we don't want them to just do paperwork all day, you know, but then like the analytics team, it's a little bit more and the Facebook marketing and our growth team, those are a little bit easier to manage. Being able to put on the hat of saying certain teams, is it as effective than other teams? No. So let's just tailor it to them. And maybe their objectives are a little more vague, but then making it very detailed for the teams that need to be. So not having a like a one overbearing way to do it. And I think it comes down to the managers really like having a good cadence with it. Because if you just look at it once a month, then it's a ton of work at the end of the month and it's not really that effective. It is just something. But if you're kind of going to it every day, it can provide a lot of clarity for the people to say, am I doing what I should be doing? And are these the results that we want? It truly comes from the people in those departments. Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders, distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. I recently started doing three-month plans for new hires of just like, here's what your first three months should look like. Month one, you're, you know, you're doing this. Month two, it's looking like this. You're feeling like this. And by month three, it should be this. And that's been the best way for me to kind of, you know, audit employees and then be like, oh, yeah, I forgot what I told you three months ago. But if I look at our plan, you're actually on track or you're not at all. How can we get you back on track? And that's been helpful. And then they, of course, add things to it of like, and now I'm doing this and this and this too. And kind of also putting in their hands to show me like, well, what other things are you doing that I just don't know that you're doing or you're getting tasked? So that's been a good new hire thing. Totally. One more note on that. I think managers, we used to just give people manager titles, but now they actually have to be in like a strategy role Mm -hmm. to be a manager. So if you're a manager, the OKRs are going to be a little bit more important where you're going to have to lead that. And you're the ones to do strategy as well, because that's why you're a manager. And I think even just saying that statement to the managers, it like unlocked a lot of how they work versus just giving them the title and having people under them. No, you're in a strategy role. You're going to lead this team, whether it's an ambassador schedule where for women, we're going to do this and men, we're going to just, you need to be guiding them and just telling them that they're going to be doing that unlocks a lot 
within that, within the program versus before not having that. And a lot of times it can be one sentence that you can get so much. And then a light bulb goes off and they realize here's what I'm supposed to be doing both on the manager and the worker level. So. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So before we started recording, you were talking about this kind of founder mentality of how, you know, when you start a company, you're going in, you've got these big ideas, you know, you're being the visionary. And then oftentimes you have seen that kind of founders can lose that as the business actually starts working. I want to touch on that a bit more and hear kind of, you know, how you even came to that idea and what you do day to day to keep you, you know, visionary. Totally. So as a brand matures, I think it's important that the founder continues to have interest that he wants and uh, things that are important to him. And one of those for us was we wanted to do other things outside of shirts, mainly because I wanted to be proud and walk around in a, a colder climate with our brand on our chest sort of. It was all really derived from things that I wore every day, whether a bomber jacket, a vest, uh, a Sherpa piece. Outside looking in, you're, you would say, does that make sense for you as a brand? But it was something that I had a lot of passion towards. I felt like I, you know, I was our customer and we could get our community to get behind it. And it's been a huge success for us. You know, you look at businesses and when I, I, meet, I meet so many founders now, and you can totally see the founder when you meet the founder, and then you can see their imprint on the business. And that's so unique. That's unique to who they are. And I think it's super important to not forget that as you get older, not just looking at charts and, and doing things that, you know, maybe your investors tell you what you need to do or some of the other people, but keep it unique to who you are and, you know, within reason and it has to fit the, the, the community and the brand, but you see it all the time. Like Elon Musk puts games in his cars and, yeah. and makes it fun because he's into that stuff. And that's what makes Tesla so unique. And that's a story that people can tell one of our visions for the business is to do on-court NBA shoes, but we don't want to be an athletic brand because we look at NBA shoes as being more of like a, for the NBA guys, they're on-court shoes, but people wear Jordans all that time with jeans and stuff. And it's kind of a culturally relevant shoe. We want to do that one day. And does that make sense? We started as a t-shirt brand outside looking in, but we see that vision that that could be a huge thing for us. And we're going to be the brand that ties it in, in a way that no one else has before. Like we see that, we see that we can do that. As in, you know, you might be saying, hey, Steve, I don't see how that connects, but it's up to us as a brand and as a visionary is to show the customer how we're going to do that. You know, there is a lot of analytics in business and we rely on analytics more than anything, but also you, as a brand owner, part of your job is telling someone why they need it. So it's a very yin and yang. You got to do both great. That's kind of my approach towards all that stuff and vision. Yeah, got it. Were there any unique ideas that you all maybe put out into the world that you actually weren't sure if they were going to work, but they became like a big success or a big part of your business. And we're maybe just kind of like a test project. Totally. Um, we have a, a Friday projects launch that we launch one product every wow. Friday at nine twenty seven sixteen. Yeah. 55 products Jeez. in the year. It's, it's a beast, but we launch it nine twenty seven sixteen Cause that's when our Kickstarter went live September 9th, 2016 on the 27th of September. So that's cool. Our goal with the program was to use our hunches and put them to the test and do it in a way we could learn quick. So uh, a lot of times it's colors that we normally wouldn't do. It's certain products that we didn't want to do, but our goal was to find the next big winner, but also have an area of our business that we could take a shot and be okay if it failed. Now that did put a lot of pressure on our product teams and our planning teams, but you know we, we did it and it was a real struggle in the beginning, just getting products, but now we're in season two of it. And it found us joggers, which, you know, joggers is a huge part of our business now, almost as much as our, our t-shirts was at, uh, when we launched. It got us to do, you know, different cuts 
of, of like longer vi- versions of t-shirts. And a lot, we realized that a lot of customers that also our shirts were more slender. We released a more wider cut and that was a huge success. And so that was one program we were like, all right, it's going to be a lot of work. We're going to have to hire for it. And it might just be like just doing too much. That might be one of the most reasons why we've been able to scale so much because we have such good data and we can take such big bets now once we find something on selling 500 units. Now we can go deep in it and we can maximize that launch so much better because we feel confident about it. It also helps us from not making huge mistakes. Ones that we're like, we had that hunch, we had that vision and we're like, no one bought it, but it was only 500 units. So it's okay. So that's been something that that we're super pumped on. It can take on a life of its own. We have about five to 10,000 people in our VIP community. Now, when we launch stuff on Friday projects, it sells out in minutes. We had a, a coast bomber jacket. We sold every unit within like one minute. Wow. And now with the whole NFT and cause we're thinking, all right, we don't have enough units to, for all the people that want these on Fridays. Let's create a new program where if you buy the NFT, you get access to Friday projects early, and then you can trade that NFT to, you know, other people in line who, you know, maybe you're good with Friday projects, then you can sell it, you know? And when we started the program, that wasn't even really a thing. And now it is a thing. And that program's launching at the beginning of the year. We think it's going to be like newsworthy. It's going to be custom one of one, but if we wouldn't have had Friday projects a year in, we couldn't have done this NFT thing that we're really pumped on because we wouldn't have had something that it made sense to have. Like, why would you buy that? Mm-hmm. It's only for people that really want those items that can't always get them on Friday. Taking a swing at something that's kind of hard to do or you're not really sure about, you know, a lot of things we've done that haven't panned out, but that's been one of them that has now taken on a life of its own. We have a whole Friday projects team. It creates so much good for the community hype. It brings our LTV and our AOV up and our, it just, it really, you know, complements our business in a way that we wouldn't have anticipated. Wow. That's awesome. Really cool hearing how you're thinking about like NFTs. I mean, how do you keep that community engaged? How did you get them to come there to begin with and then stay engaged where they're waiting for every Friday drop and, you know, potentially me getting these NFTs and then trading them? Like, what are you doing to keep everyone in there kind of, you know, happy and talking and yeah, actually feeling like a community? Well, one, I would say the first things were consistent with it. Every mm-hmm. Friday at 9, 27, 16, they weren't always it took a while. It took like uh, you know a year to really get the program up where people knew about it, you know. And then we we had good products that people couldn't buy, and that actually helped the the program. So consistency was key. We're big in clustering our customer base. So you know, if you order our VIPs, our VIPs are people who have ordered over a thousand dollars within the first ninety days, and then five hundred, and then two fifty, and then we create different email lists and flows, and you know, even Facebook groups for each of those tiers. One tier gets, you know, the VIPs of the VIPs get a phone call where they can talk to someone at any time about their order. They get free shipping. But now the NFT ones, the kind of like the, the, the highest tier, we actually charge you for the NFT. You're like one of a hundred people that have access to Friday projects and you'll be guaranteed to get one as you'll have access to buy. So just, just clustering our customers based on their per, how their purchase behaviors is huge and our loyalty and our lifecycle teams have done a great job of segmenting our customers because, you know, someone that buys a lot of money, they'll get pissed if, if like someone with one order gets access to it. So just treating yeah. our customers on their journey where they are is super important. Wow. That's, that's a cool way to think about like how to keep people engaged at different levels and the different expectations they have, depending on kind of what you sold them, you know, what's important to them and you're telling them like, this is a very important thing. The NFT is a very important you know piece to this. So mm-hmm. how are you 
looking into acquiring customers now? Because I look at, you know, your industry and it seems like it's very competitive now when it comes to, you know, shirts and men's clothes. And they're always advertising to me thinking like, oh, I'll buy this for my, you know, partner. So how are you guys finding your customers right now in a way that's not kind of competing with the noise around you? So I think in the early days, we we did compete with everyone in terms of, uh, you know, spend and all that. And it was funny, you, you leading up to Black Friday this year, if you're on Twitter, everyone's saying how, all right, this, this year is, you're going to be horrible. It, last year was the COVID bump, you know, gear up for battle. And I always laugh at those where Black Friday and spend isn't, if you just focus it on those months, you're going to have, you're not going to be successful, but Black Friday success really starts in January. How do you, how are your 90 day cohorts? You know, are you running sales all the time? So now Black Friday, it's not as valuable. Like if you have a great brand, you can really maximize that impulse buy part of the year where people feel like they need to buy something because everyone around them is buying, mm-hmm. but you should do your job where your community knows that's your, like you make it special for them and you live within your, our cuts ecosphere. We always say like what happens like in the world doesn't always affect, you know, our customers like it does other brands. And that was true this year. We, we had our best Black Friday and it wasn't even close because we're getting better of our customer journey. And so it kind of goes to the point before of we're really paying attention to the first 90 days of the customer. Are they treated in a way where they know, hey, the size doesn't work. They can get a new item or, you know, the they, shipping was delayed. Are we making up for it or whatever the thing we need to do? Are we doing that? Because that is so important at getting them back later in the year. Are, are the products great that we're coming out with that they feel special, that they feel like they need to buy during that period of time? So there, there's a lot of things. It's never one thing that makes uh, advertising or how to lower a CAC. I would say it's products, community, and uh, customer clustering, clustering, which is uh, so important. We also, you know, we're not also not one of those brands that's like 100% on Facebook or Instagram spend. We have a pretty healthy media mix. We do spend a lot of money on like influencers, TV, we're on TV, we're on podcasts. Um, so we have a healthy diet. You don't want going into Q4 if you only spend on one channel, that would be tough. You'd be at the mercy of the algorithm. Um, I always tell the, our growth teams, we can't, can't be at the mercy of the algorithm. We, in the early days we were, but after, t- after it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, you use it as like the, the way to kind of get your start, but you need good word of mouth. And how do you have good word of mouth? You have great products. You have a great program where the customers feel taken care of. They can return stuff. You just have a good business. And then that should allow you to decrease your percent of spend on your revenue year over year because the, the, the flywheel is working. Now, if, you're profitable on your first order, but people never come back. That's not a good business. So you got to have, you got to have a good business. One thing that's really helped me is I always look at S ones that come out publicly traded companies mm-hmm. and everything's public. It's such a great roadmap for young uh, businesses. And you see in the early days, their percent of marketing spend was high, but as, as you go, like Lulu is like 12 to 18% versus a lot of businesses on Facebook are like 50%. Over time, they've needed to relying on advertising less because uh, they just have great product and a great community. So if you, if you focus on those two areas as a young business, over time, you should be able to lean off of it if you're actually producing a healthy business. Got it. That's a, that's a good take. And I'll have to check out more S1s. I haven't done that for a while. Bring me back to my finance days. 
So earlier you mentioned influencers and I want to hear how you're kind of playing in that arena. I know you've done some cool things on YouTube. I think you have something called Always On. It's uh, the YouTube channel where you're talking to athletes and yep. celebrities. So I want to hear, you know, what was the vision behind that and how's it working? Awesome. So we have like a three-prong approach towards community. We have a top-down, bottoms-up and an organic uh, content strategy. So the top-down is we work with like guys behind the board, like, you know, MLB players, country singers, rappers, guys that, uh, you know, are the world's most ambitious people. And that's what we focus on. We never ask for anything from them. We don't pay them. We just say, Hey, we got a shirt with your name on it. Let me know if you, if you like, it, if you want more, a lot of times in influencer marketing, if you go straight to payment, you're, you're not going to have success. If we're doing our job, finding people that actually are our community, but just influencers and, and athletes, they should want the product more than just once. So our arbitrage is that we have a great product that they want over and over. And then therefore a relationship's built. And that's our approach with like the top tier celebrities. Cause we're, we're a startup. We don't have millions of dollars to pay them. Then we have a bottoms up approach. We work with like really micro guys, um, people with not a ton of followers that just are, are really are like almost like VIP of VIP customers, like people who are just so passionate about cuts in our brand. And we task them to, you know, for our Sherpa piece, they have to do X, Y, and Z and there's campaigns every month. And having both of that is just a healthy diet of community. And then our content marketing strategy is how we showcase to to both of those areas, kind of what we're doing. And we use the top-down approach to get a fee. It's a feeder system into doing always on. We demo with Mariana Rivera, which is like a great closer. And he's become a brand friend. I actually talked to him, you know, a couple of days ago. And uh, just doing things in the business that show people that we're always on. It's a, it's a slogan we say at Cuts, you're always on, whether you're at a, a movie theater or on, on a day party. You're not going to be one of those guys that's, over, that's too drunk or any of that. You're going you're gonna to be a good representation of your family and your community and Cuts. And we always want you wearing Cuts. So it's kind of a, it kind of goes both ways. And we try to find professional athletes or, or people that are also always on. Wow. I love that. It's a good way to think about like the all-encompassing brand strategy and how to kind of get everyone to also be showcasing that wherever they're going and that mindset. That's really cool. Are there any new platforms or yeah, platforms or advertising strategies that you guys are trying out right now that you're not really certain if it's going to work out maybe as well as like TV or Instagram, but you're putting some bets there? TikTok, their native ad platform, we're spending a, a ton of money. Um, and the conversion cycle is a little like wishy-washy uh, to understand if the attributions there, if it's actually making conversions, that the impressions are great. You know, it's, it's not as black and white as some of the other platforms. One thing that's really helped us as we've scaled off Facebook and started putting our budgets elsewhere, is just post-purchase surveys of where you found us. Um, it sounds like a basic thing to do. And every brand, I just like, I say it and they're like, oh, I, I never thought of doing that. It's like the old school way of doing marketing, but it actually makes a huge difference and it helps you with attribution because GA is not always going to be perfect. You know, people like to double count, but that's like your customers telling you if you do it consistently, it's not going to be perfect, but it'll give you a good indication if spend is like completely wasted. Mm -hmm. And so we've done that and, and TikTok has shown to be, you know, not crazy great results yet, but we believe in that they've, they've had updates quarter over quarter. So I feel like the the audience is in, is there. It's kind of one of these things we just got to push it through as long and kind of let them catch up. And I have faith that they'll get it there. Yeah. Are there any secondary platforms that people are saying they're coming from that you were surprised by? Snapchat, actually. So like 
Oh, interesting. I actually read something the other day for audiences 18 to 25. It's the number one platform. You know, when I started the business, I was 25, but now I'm 31. That's another thing. Brands do get older. And so you have to, this is like the first year we're actually thinking, hey, we, we actually got to make sure we meet customers where they are that are younger. Mm-hmm. So we've recently upped our spend. And again, not the great greatest attribution in platform, but uh, that when you do post-purchase surveys, you know, another thing that shows it, it can be a, a great way to onboard customers. I think that's a, a big thing too, is in platform data, even for Facebook, the new privacy stuff has been so bad. You need a good internal way to look at all of your ad spend um, and, and revenue. And with those post-purchase surveys, that can, that can lead you to understanding what's being effective. And you might realize like, you know, Facebook at this spend level is, is really efficient, but as we go to this one, it becomes less. You can actually find some low-hanging fruit on some of these other channels that can actually make your overall, we call it our MER, or overall marketing spend versus revenue, actually decrease. Um, so you, you just got to have a good growth lead that understands levers. And then, you know, he's kind of like playing like uh, offensive GM where he's, you know, one month trying this. And yeah. if he's there long enough, he'll have a good flow of understanding when to take certain bets. Very cool. So, all right, last question. Where do you all want to be in the next one to two years? Like, what are you headed towards right now? So we, um, I think in this next phase of cuts, we've done our first five years and now we're going into a full lifestyle brand with, you know, head to toe products. I think more than anything, we really want to connect on a physical standpoint with our customers. And, um, you know, we want to inspire them to live ambitiously and to get up and believe that they can do things that they put their mind to. Our story is, you know, four guys that haven't raised money from small town when actually Washington, you know, we use cuts as our vehicle to, to live at our dream. And we want to provide that opportunity uh, with uh, our audience. And to start the year, we're coming up with our first challenge, what's called Cuts Car- Carpe Diem. And we're really excited that it's going to be a way to engage our community and to, to think of new ways to, to get up off the couch and to maybe start that business that they want to, or, you know, ask that girl out and been seen at the grocery store every week. We want to motivate them. And I think with the pandemic, we haven't been as physical. To this point, we should have been much more physical, but we've kind of been forced not to be you know, we have four pop-ups going on next year, one in LA, New York, Seattle, and Chicago. I think those will be great areas that we get to finally connect with our audience. They get a buy merge. We get to bring our top influencers and athletes there. And that's going to be something that I think is really missing. So that's going to be um, super important for us to, to really connect. That's our real big focus because that's how we're going to live on more than just five years. Yeah. Wow. There's definitely a lot of pent up demand for all of that. So it'll be fun watching how you guys do that and what it looks like. Very exciting. Definitely. Steven, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was really fun getting to hear about what you all are doing right now at Cuts and where you're headed. Thank you. Where can people find out more about Cuts? It may be cuts.com when this comes out, but Cuts Clothing will redirect. We're on the final yard line of buying it. And then uh, at Cuts, C-U-T-S on Instagram, at Cuts on TikTok, at Cuts Clothing on Twitter. So either one of those will work. Yeah, I would just say whoever's listening that, you know, my mom always used to say this every day, but it's so true. Uh, whatever you put your mind to, you can accomplish. I, I think that that slogan's almost been lost, but that was not as mom's not having a, a biggest voice, but she used to, my mom used to say to me every day when I left for school in the morning and I felt like it became my magic, like juice that I had on mm-hmm. everyone else that no yeah. one else had because simply just because she told uh-huh. me that. 
really believing that. Like I didn't really believe it when I was young, but as I started having the littlest wins, I started really thinking it. And then that that's led to a lot of success. So yeah, I hope, hopefully that's some last words of encouragement. I love that. That's great. Go mom. All right. Well, thanks so much, Steven. And until next time, this was great. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you'll probably also love our e-commerce newsletter. To get it delivered straight to your inbox every week, sign up at mission.org slash upnextincommerce. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.